日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイト「サムライ・アーカイブズ・ポッドキャスト」へようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris, your host, and today we'll be discussing the 8th century military defense statute of the Yoro Code, aka the Yoro Ritsuryo. Well, that's a mouthful. Anyway, the defense statute codified and defined the hierarchy of the Yamato army, and we'll get into the whys and hows, as well as the nuts and bolts of translating such a document. So here we go with myself, Nate, and Travis for part one. So, going through、uh, the Yoro Code of promulgated in,、uh, it was written in 720 and then promulgated a little bit later,、uh, but it essentially is a, one of a series of codes, legal codes, written in the、uh, late 600 or, and, and early 700s, which outline、uh, the structure of the Yamato state or what, you know, what we would come to know as Japan. Uh, at that time, underneath、uh, the emperor in、uh, Nara and, and, and、uh, later Kyoto. So, looking at the 17th chapter,、uh, or the, yeah, the 17th chapter uh, of uh, the Yoro Code,、uh, which outlines the structure of the military. What I... So, I should probably jump in and say so, who wrote these codes? <laughs> um, was a guy named Bob. <laughs> and、uh, I mean, it was, you know, courtiers in service of the state. So,、uh, particularly、uh, Emperor Tenmu、uh, at the, the time that I'm, I'm looking at it in, with the Yoro Code. So,、um, but yeah, I mean, it was the, you know, the court functionaries who were responsible for putting this together.、Uh, and they,、uh, you know, the reason that there's a creation of a military. Uh, was because at the time there was some concern. They, they had recently been pushed off the Korean peninsula、uh, by a combination of forces from the Tang and Silla、uh, and uh, were uh, afraid uh, that, well, number one, you know, they, they had gotten their butt kicked. So、uh, that's a good emphasis,、uh, impetus excuse me, for、uh, you know, restructuring your military because why would you keep it the same way that wasn't working? Uh, and number two,、um, there was concern that you know, now the actual islands of Japan、uh, were in danger of being invaded. You know, once they'd been pushed off of the、uh, Korean Peninsula,、uh, the, the next possibility was that the Tang forces would, would cross over into the Japanese islands. Okay. I don't want to derail it, but、uh, what, do you think that was a distinct possibility at the time? Not really. I mean, this is completely not my area of expertise, the, the, the history at this time.、Uh, but if you read through、uh, a couple books in English、uh, that, that address this, would be、uh, Joan Piggott's.、Uh, dang it, I'm blanking on the title, and it's right over on my bookshelf where I can't see it. Emergence of Japanese.、Uh, that、kingship. one. Yes, that one. Yeah,、uh, Piggott's book,、uh, Emergence of Japanese Kingship.、Um, then also、uh, Friday and Ferris.、Um, Ferris's、uh, Heavenly Warriors and Friday's Hired Swords.、Uh, 
um, are all specifically about the army, whereas Pigott's book is mostly about the uh, creation of the Japanese state. Um, but yeah, all of them kind of agree that that this wasn't really a possibility. But there's that there's no way that they could have known that. You know, I mean, yeah, it would have been uh, logistically <laughs> uh, difficult for the Tang and 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 Shilla to uh, to do that. And uh, there's no indication, as far as I know, that it was even considered. Uh, but again, you know, it's not like the Japanese court knows this. Uh, they know that they had been defeated uh, relatively you know, decisively, uh, at the Battle of Pakchon in 663, that's, uh, you know, pretty decisively, it, it was a pretty good indication that they needed to conduct some reforms. So what do you do when you are defeated by a superior military? Well, you copy the way that they organize their military. So, uh, the Yoro Code in general, and most of these, uh, what we call, uh, the, the Ritu Ryo codes that were written around in this time period were copied from from Tang Chinese models uh, so they did the same thing with this this is a copy of the uh, the Tang Ritsuryo code uh, section and then which they they have adapted to fit uh, a Japanese structure uh, now it's my understanding from talking with several scholars that at least in English nobody has really done a comparison of the uh, military sections of the Yoro code with the military sections of the Tong code and gone through and explained what's different and, and why. So I've had that suggested to me as a follow-on topic. That may be something that, you know, I look to in the future to collaborate with somebody who's a little more smart on the, the Tong side of things, but, uh, but we'll see. All right. So um, in going through uh, what I did, and we'll, we'll talk about the kind of the process of this this later, but um, I, I looked at the code. I did a, a what's called a, a, a gloss or, or like a, a summary translation for the vast majority of the 75 different articles uh, within this legal code. And then for uh, 11 of them, I, I translated them in detail. But yeah, so basically this, what this law does, what this particular chapter of the law anyways, uh, chapter 17 does, is it sets up the structure of a uh, national, to use the word, uh, even though that can be problematic, um, but it, it sets up a, 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 a national military, uh, an army. So, uh, you know, responsible to the, the capital uh, which at this point is uh, uh, Nada, and you know the emperor uh, and the court. So, in one of the problems that uh, had been had has been noted about the army at uh, Pekchon uh, and before this was that it was a patchwork force uh, which relied on uh, regional. Uh, powerful nobles to gather together military forces themselves uh, and then, you know, deploy over to the Korean Peninsula in service of the Yamato court. Well, um, this wasn't a very efficient means of raising troops, nor was it a very efficient uh, command structure, um, and is at least seen in the, the, the writing I've seen on it, uh, is, is blamed for uh, the reasons that uh, that they lost that battle and, and 
were not successful in Korea. I mean, I, I'd have to do more research into it. I, I'd like, uh, I, I'd probably assume that it also had to do with the fact that, you know, the Tang had a lot more military force available to them uh, and were uh, fighting on, on ground uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, was friendly to them in the, the, uh, in the form of uh, Silla. Uh, in on, in Korea, the one of the Korean kingdoms. So, you know, that's I, I can't give any like clear analysis of of that particular battle or, or what was going on there. But the point is that that this is what the the Japanese at the time decided was that they needed to uh, restructure their army uh, to make it uh, more effective, uh, and also so that they had an efficient means uh, of raising large numbers of troops. Uh, at a moment's notice, uh, in because of the fear of invasion that was uh, that, that you know had come about because of this situation. So then the eleven articles, I'm, yeah, the eleven articles that I looked at talked about the structure of the gundam, which for uh, our purposes will translate as the regiment. Uh, now I'll talk a little bit about the the the, the choices you have to make in interpretation uh, and translation. Uh, in a little bit, but but for now, uh, the the Gundam is the, it's it's a core provincial military unit, and this is uh, composed of up to or somewhere between six hundred and a thousand men. Uh, but for you know conceptual purposes, it's it's a thousand men, and so the the this is who's active in the provincial military at any given time. Okay, so a gundan is assigned at the, the provincial level. Uh, and so it falls underneath the administrative control of the provincial government, so the, the provincial governor is responsible for its oversight. Uh, it's commanded by an officer uh, called the daiki, uh, which I have chosen to translate as regimental commander. And then there's a, uh, depending on the size of the gundan, uh, it, it, they, a full strength one at a thousand has two deputy commanders uh, who are called shoki uh, underneath him. Depending on where it falls within that 600 to a thousand range, like they have cutoffs for, well, if you only have 600, then you only have one deputy. If if it's a understrength gundan that has less than 500 soldiers, then you you don't get to have a deputy assigned until I guess you go out and recruit more soldiers. So there, so so that's the the top structure of it, right? And so these these um, these commanders, these these daiki and shoki, come from the uh, mid mid range aristocratic uh, nobles of the court. So generally uh, fifth or sixth rank and their progeny, if that makes sense. So that's who's getting these assignments. People who aren't quite up to the level of you know, being in national politics. Maybe they're the sons of people who are in national politics you know, and at a higher rank, and they get assigned uh, through the uh, Hyobusho, uh, which is you know, one of the military uh, commands. I mean, think like the Pentagon, right? Uh, in the capital, uh, they are assigned these positions as uh, as uh, daiki and, and shoki over the top of provincial uh, gundan. Now, 
why, why, what's the big deal about that? Why is that important? It's showing, at least on paper, that instead of, oh, some, you know, rich guy out in the provinces or, you know, noble out in the provinces is raising troops on his own, the command of this is decided from the center. It's, it's from coming from the capital. So it's, it's, it's a move towards central oversight of military resources. Um, which is a huge change from what was going on before. And as we'll talk about, I'm sure, later, it's a huge change from where we end up going uh, later in the, the Heian period uh, that leads to you know, the rise of the samurai class and, and so on and so forth. Um, so this is a, it's a brief window in time. This actually gets, uh, the system gets abolished before the end of the century, uh, before the year 800. Uh, but... There's this brief window of time where the, the central government is exercising complete control, at least on paper, of the uh, military within the country. So, all right, so that's, that's the top level of commanders, right? And then these, so underneath them, they had subordinate officers uh, who commanded different size units, right? So then you have uh, so so some of these you have the Koyi, uh, who commands uh, two hundred men, uh, a Ryosui, who is in charge of one hundred, and a Taisei, uh, who leads fifty men. So, so is that uh, is that a hierarchy where you'll have like uh, two of the guys that that command fifty under one guy that commands a hundred, or how does that work? So that's an excellent question. Uh, that would be the assumption. Uh, however, there seems to be a little bit of debate on that. I think that that makes sense, and I think that's the way – when I read the different articles, that's what it seems to be suggesting to me. The problem is uh, it doesn't necessarily give – like so, – so for instance, um, it says these these people, these officers, the Koi, the, uh, the Ryosi, and the Taisei command these numbers of people, right? Um, but unlike the Gundan, like where it says, okay, a Daiki commands a Gundan, right? It doesn't give a unit name to what the Koi and the Ryosi command in the text, right? So it just says they command. It says just they they just command these these well. So you, there's got to you got to have some evaluation of what it's doing, right? Like, I think we'll get into the, like the, the scholarly treatments of this later. But uh, you know, one one person I read kind of just ignores both of these, uh, and and doesn't even talk about it. Uh, another one says, well, I, I, you know, apparently found somewhere else that a Ryosui commands what's called a Ryodan, uh, uh, which is a hundred men, and 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 so he believes that that's a subordinate unit of the Gundan, but he also skips the Koi. I think it's an it's a reasonable assumption to think to say that okay, uh, a you know thousand man Gundan was made up of five two hundred person units that were commanded by Koi, uh, and then underneath that, uh, each each Koi's unit, whatever we're calling it, uh, of two hundred men has a you know two one hundred man units underneath that. Uh, commanded by Ryosui, and then each of those has two 50-man units commanded by a Taisei. Uh, now, and when not, you... not one of those have a, none of these units have like unit 
names or terms to refer to each of these units? So the tie say um, does. The 50-man unit is called a tie. And it's the same tie, uh, if our listeners are familiar with kanji, it's the same tie that mean, just means like military unit today. So like if you were to say guntai, right? Uh, military unit, it's that tie. So that was in the time of this, uh, according to the, the Yodo Code text, a tie was a, defined as a 50-person uh, unit, okay? Now below that, there are units listed. There's a ka, which is a 10-man squad, uh, and then a kumi, which are, a five, which are five-man teams. Um, again, each of these isn't – it's not spelled out where it doesn't say, okay, so two, two kumis, kumis make a ka, a... Oh, okay. right, and five ka make a tie, and two tie make a, you know, whatever the Ryosui commands. It doesn't say that specifically. So – you know, you kind of have to make the, the the decision whether you're going to assume that or not, um, and and we can get into like why you wouldn't assume that. Uh, but but I think it's a f- just looking at the document without going into any other uh, sources. Then I I think it's a safe assumption uh, that that that's how it works because that's how it seems most likely you know and most effective to command military forces is is that you would do this this way well i guess uh, speaking from your experience in in the the military is is that typical where as it breaks down that each one falls under something else or do you have like separate types of units sometimes that may or may not have the same number of men well you i mean you definitely can have have that um and this is one of the frustrating well frustrating may not be the right word one of one of the 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 challenges though in looking at stuff like this is that it's great that I have military background and experience, but there's a danger there in trying to assume that things in the year 720 are, were, yeah, uh, at all applicable were, to, are at yeah. all <laughs> similar as to, to what they are today. The interesting thing about this is that this is a very – if you just look at the, at the text of the Yodo Code, it is very modern appearing. There are certainly some differences which which we can get into, but what what interested me in this and why I decided to take a look at it is that it does contrast so heavily with both what came before and what came after in the terms of, for lack of a better term, more feudal uh, recruitment system based off of land ownership and, and so forth. I mean, this is essentially instituting a, a military draft uh, with a national guard. Uh, composed of standing units uh, where drafted soldiers rotate in and out on duty at specific times. Uh, and, you know, we'll get into all the specifics of that. But, but it is very similar uh, to what we would, would, would consider, you know, a, a modern military organizational system. And the fact that each of these uh, groups, it's specified, you know, where in the social strata are they going to uh, come from? You know, the, the I already talked about the daiki and the shoki. They're, they're, um, they come from certain uh, certain ranks, right? Same with, with, with everybody else, really. Um, Can I yeah. interrupt and ask a question? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm just, this might be taking us a little bit too off track, but I'm curious about the document itself. Okay. Um, so... First of all, 
first of all, I mean, how do we know that it's Ka and not He? Or how do we know that it's Kumi and not Go? And uh -huh. secondly, is it, I suppose if they're borrowing from the Tong code, then it's going to be in Kambun. And I'm not right. sure that Sorobun was probably even invented yet. But well, I mean, what does the text look like? Okay, so that's a good question. And actually, when I um, when I put this up, uh, or give this to, to Chris to put up, I'll put uh, a the the copy of the text that I used as well. So the reason that we know it's kumi and not go, for instance, or or a, another one, another good example is the the taisei, the commander of the fifty person unit. The kanji there is taisho, uh, would normally be read taisho in modern Japanese. The the character say is taisei. Okay, it's sho. It's 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 the character you know tadashi. Correct. So. Um, the reason that, I mean, it's a good question. How do I know that it's read that way? Because when I was looking it up in, in dictionaries, it said that during the Ritsu, the, the you know, one that I use most often is the Kokogo, Nihon Daijiten, or Daikokogo Jiten. And it says that for the period that that's how these were read. So my answer is that there's reference materials that say this is what, in the context of a Ritsudio code uh, explanation, where it's talking about it being the commander of X amount of people, this is how it's read. Um, so my assumption then is that's based on Japanese scholars over the last you know, 100 or so years doing linguistic archaeology uh, and determining that that's how these things uh that these things are read if that makes sense yeah 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 sometimes okay. it's sometimes that's all we have to go on uh yeah i mean and, and of course at the level that you know uh i'm at translating this for a grad student seminar as opposed to you know doing doing actual research uh uh that other people haven't done you know i mean this is that's that's the reference i have so yeah no of uh, course so yeah but yeah, I, I, that that's one of the interesting things about doing documents of this this period, you know, that are this early, is that things are so different. Even if you look at it and you uh, and and you you think it's familiar to you, you know, words are, are are completely read differently. And so you do have to go look at specialized dictionaries and specialized, uh, or or you know, just even just expansive dictionaries. Uh, like the Nihon Kokoro Daijiten is, that's my go-to for everything. Um, sure. Because it usually gives the, the best explanation and will tell you by period what it's talking about, you know, and, and then give examples. So, yeah, but sometimes, I mean, you just kind of have to, like, you, you look at it and go, oh, okay, well. Like, like when I came across this, I like, I immediately read it as Tai Shou, and then... When I looked at it in the dictionary, it said it said it was Taisei. I was like, okay, I guess it's Taisei. Yeah. Um, who am I to argue? So, yeah. Um, and it's yeah, and it's in and it's in Kanbun. It is in Kanbun. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it is mostly proper Kanbun. Okay. So for the listeners, can you define Kanbun? Uh, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Roughly. Uh, Travis, help. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. So the the 
the way that I normally explain Kanbun to people who, who are unfamiliar and ask about it is I say, well... We're probably fortunate enough to not have to read it. Um, I say, well, you know how in Europe in the medieval period, uh, even you know though every country had its own language, most of the time laws and so forth were written in Latin? And they're like, yeah? I said, well, it's kind of like that... Uh, where, you know, Japan, in all of its legal documents uh, in most of the ancient and medieval period, uh, used Chinese to write things down. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but um, because it there's there's a lot of variation in Kanbun. Uh, and, of course, Travis just mentioned Sorobun, which is a another variation. Um, but the, the, the basically, it's using you know, ancient medieval Chinese to write down Japanese documents. Um, the, now, a, a scholar of China will tell you that Kanbun is not good Chinese most of the time. And there's, reading it is, is interesting because you have to, well, I mean, I guess other people have different methods of, of doing it. What I do and what I've been taught to do is first take the Chinese, okay, so you have to, uh, since it's written in Chinese, it's written in Chinese, Chinese grammatical order, which is very different than Japanese grammatical order. So the first thing you have to do, do is figure out the grammar patterns, uh, figure out what character in a, in a sentence is, is the verb, and what's, you know, what's an object, what's a, what's a noun, what's a, you know, what's the subject, uh, what's, uh, what, what are, what are modifiers, what's everything doing, and then put it into a coherent order. Now there's certain rules that are used in straight kanbun, which is called jun kanbun, uh, that help you figure all this out. And oftentimes edited texts will provide editorial markings, uh, which are designed to help you go through the text and understand, okay, here's the way that it's prevent, presented in Chinese order, but um, this is, you know, this is how, this is the, the order that you should actually read it in to get it into a Japanese uh, word order. The problem is, and this text wasn't really uh, difficult in that regard, uh, but I've worked with other texts, especially in my own period of specialty, the Sengoku period, where they're, they're, they're called uh, hentai kanbun, um, which is a non-standard kanbun. It's it's basically you know kanbun written by people who aren't a hundred percent literate in kanbun. Uh, so very often you'll have it'll be strings of Chinese characters, uh, the kanji, but not in a Chinese grammatical order. And so you just kind of have to go by feel of whether or not you're supposed to be switching things or not. And I've, uh, I've actually worked with texts on some of the Shimazu documents that, I, that I'm working for research where they will switch in the middle of the document uh, or from uh, essentially sentence to sentence. Like one sentence will be written in a nice, you know, standard classical Chinese order, and then the next thing will be, you know, just jotted down in a Japanese order by you know, and, and the author or, or authors just kind of switched um, styles willy-nilly through the document. And that can be kind of frustrating. I, I do not envy you that. Yeah. Well, Conlin has said to me on multiple occasions that uh, the documents for the, for, the, for the Sengoku period, the reason that so, like, 
not many people work on it is because they are so hard. And the why they're so hard is because there's absolutely no standardization whatsoever. Um, right. Like all the because all the structures break of official officialdom, uh, like the Kurodo and 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 so forth that are producing documents to court standards, all kind of get thrown out the window. Um, and so you have people who aren't trained to like. I mean, it'd be like if you just threw somebody in. Uh, a legal office and said, here, write, write, you know, contracts or legal documents. And they had no training on how to do that according to the right legal, you know, formats and, and so forth. Um, so it, it makes it interesting. That's for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, this, that was not a problem in reading the Yoro code. The Yoro code would, was, for the most part, fairly, uh, fairly standard. The, the, the things that I had to watch out for were things like the, the different, uh, you know, non-standard readings because they were earlier readings than what, uh, what, uh, what would be used to as, as modern Japanese speakers. And also, um, yeah, I mean, the copy that I was working with was fairly well, you know, edited. It's about 22 pages of text, uh, Japanese text. And it's organized by articles. So there's an article heading, uh, and then the main uh, entry, and then there's commentary, uh, which I'm sure Travis you've seen before in older documents uh, or you know edited documents. Though it's commentary written by people in the period to explain what they either what they just wrote or somebody else coming along to explain what had been written. Uh, to make it easier. Now, when I did my translation, I did not translate the commentaries word for word because in many cases they were simply redundant. You know, and in, in other cases, uh, it just it, it made more sense for a workable uh, translation to fold it into the main text uh, rather than do it word for word. So I made that choice stylistically. But yeah, this was... Uh, the, the text I was working off of, like I said, it's fairly well edited uh, with both the Kaidi Ten, uh, which are the marks that help you go back and forth uh, with the order, uh, and also suggested uh, uh, reading marks for some of the that help you fill in some of the grammar. That said, there were portions of it, and uh, and and this is kind of the way that I've been taught by both. Uh, uh, Professor Conlon and some of my uh, other Japanese uh, professors, is there were portions where I ignored the editing and went my own direction with the translation because, you know, editors are humans, uh, and sometimes they, uh, you know, because what you're doing is you're taking Chinese text and translate and, and transliterating it almost into uh, a Japanese format, is that, you know, there's multiple ways to do that, and you may or may not agree with the way that the editor chose to do it. Uh, so there were times where I, 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 I would change kind of the, the, the verb endings or something from what the, what the editor had just simply because I, I didn't, I didn't like the way that they were doing it. Um, but that doesn't change the meaning too much most of the time. Anyway, kind of give you a sense there. Yeah. My, my, okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we're just out of curiosity, where did you, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is of any interest to uh, to many of our listeners, but just out of curiosity, I mean, where where were you reading this from? Is it uh, 
some kind of, uh, I don't know, ancient documents collection. Uh, okay. Nani Nani Shu or something like this. Right. So it's out Shidio of, Shu. yeah, it's out of Kokushi Taike. Oh, okay. um, and it's volume 22, the uh, Ryo no Gige. Hmm. Uh, okay. So it's the list of uh, Ritsu Ryo codes. Uh, nice. Okay. So from, Kokushi Taike. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So so Zoho uh, Shinte Zoho Kokushi Taike okay. uh, was the 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 base text that I used, and that this this one particular one was published 1998 to 2000. Hmm. So Kokushi Taike is one of one of quite a number of compilations that right, the Japanese scholars right. have put together right. of historical documents. And it's, it's sort of, I don't know, one of these like very standard resources. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, of course, you're, you're, you're familiar as well. You know, there's, there's multiple types of these um, sets of volumes and some of them, they all have their own quirks and some of them are more, uh, uh, useful than others. Some of them are better edited than others. Generally speaking, some of the older ones can be less proofread, but at the same time may have things that you can't get in something that's newer and 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 so yeah. on and so forth. So yeah, yeah, um, it does make it interesting. But uh, but yeah, yeah. So that was the baseline product that I used. Um, and I did what I did was as much as possible. I didn't look at other stuff prior to my initial cut at a translation only after i had translated a sentence uh did i look at something else to kind of see had i you know am i heading in the right direction and again kind of like i said earlier you know so much of this is your own uh style and feel so even when i looked at uh other kakikudashi which is like the 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 gloss of it into classical Japanese. Uh, there were times where I disagreed with what that person was doing with it. And so didn't, you know, didn't use it. Um, and then um, I looked at a couple translations into modern Japanese and frequently did not like the way that they were doing it. So uh, did a, did my own. Um, and that's part of like, I mean, that's, that's what this class the, that I was doing this for was it's, it's translation of uh, ancient documents. So we, you know, we started with Mokkan, uh, which are the wood, like, they're big wood sticks that are used as, like, luggage tags in many cases, uh, or, like, shipping tags uh, in, like, from, I think the earliest one we looked at was from the 500s, maybe, uh, all the way through Heian period uh, court diaries and so forth. So it was a lot of documents, a lot of types of documents that I hadn't seen before, and it was really good, but, uh, you know, one of the things we did with these legal codes and so I chose to do this for my project but um but yeah you I mean a lot of it is just so much getting used to so many different kinds of documents and getting familiar with their own idiosyncrasies and then where they're found whether it's uh Kokushi Taike um or uh you know some of the other compilations uh you know just knowing uh what what to look for in those so um, yeah, I've just found, you know, going through my own research at the stage that I'm at now, mm -hmm. it's just really interesting. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's only interesting to, to myself, but it's interesting to me to see where, where I found documents and, um, right. yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm getting ready for that. I'm actually, 
I'm going to be in Japan this summer doing a little bit of a, a, a work, so I'm gearing up for where do I go look for things? And how much of it can I find here versus where I have to like go to some small little archive in rural Kagoshima, which I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I missed out on going to Kagoshima last time around, oh. so I'm probably going to end up in Kagoshima this summer as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, all right, yeah. well, enough inside baseball here. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> all right, that's it for part one, so stay tuned for part two coming soon. And I want to thank the patrons on Patreon for their support. And if you haven't checked it out, please head over to patreon.com slash samuraiarchives to see how you can support the podcast and get early access to new episodes, access to bonus content, and other goodies. Also, be sure to tell a friend about the podcast, and then they'll tell some of their friends, and those friends will tell some more friends, and pretty soon we'll have a podcast version of Junshi, except that nobody dies and more people are listening to the podcast. It's a win-win. So, thanks again, and see you next time.